Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a new episode of ModPass Chat. I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Jason Hornick. Jason is a professor of pathology at Harvard University, where he serves as the director of surgical pathology and immunohistochemistry at Brigham and Women Hospital. Dr. Horneck is a world-renowned expert in soft tissue and bone pathology. He is the editor-in-chief of the fifth series of the FIP fascicles, a huge task, I imagine, and an expert editor uh, of both the past and the current series of the WHO on the topic, too. He serves on the on 13 editorial boards, uh, including ours. Uh, probably that's his most important editorial board in modern pathology. Jason is with us today to discuss his team's recent publication in Modern Path on the utility of DDIT3 expression. I said it right, right, Jason, in the diagnosis of myxoid liposarcomas. Thank you, Dr. Hornick, for accepting my invitation. Thank you, George. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation to talk about this exciting new area in soft tissue tumor diagnostic pathology. Excellent. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you again, and uh, 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 a cool, as we say, and, uh, and very helpful study. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading it, and hopefully our audience uh, will benefit from that. So tell me, how did you come about doing the study? What was your aim? What was your final objective? Of launching it? Well, most of the research that I've uh, been engaged in for the last 15 years has been attempts to bring discoveries in molecular genetics of cancer, mostly soft tissue tumors, but a little bit of a broad range of oncologic surgical pathology, uh, into routine diagnostic practice with easy to apply tools that um, people all over the world can use, including laboratories who do not have access to high throughput you know, fancy modern next generation sequencing technologies. So I've mostly been using old school immunostochemistry using a single antibody as a surrogate for a molecular genetic alteration. And 
there's lots of ways you can do this. You can look for loss of the protein product of a tumor suppressor gene. The first study where I did that was using INI1 or SMARC-B1 and epithelioid sarcoma, which is already more than 12 years ago now. But but we also use it for lots of translocation-associated sarcomas where there's a product of the gene rearrangement that you can identify using immunistic chemistry. And quite recently, um, just in the last year, uh, my colleague and friend, Greg Charville, who's a a GI and soft tissue pathologist uh, at Stanford in California, published a beautiful study uh, in myxoid liposarcoma showing us that you can use an antibody directed against the N-terminus of the DDIT3 protein as a surrogate for the translocations we've known about for more than 20 years in myxoid liposarcoma. Um, So because of that publication, uh, I reached out to Greg to ask if he'd be interested in collaborating with our group to do a follow-up study, uh, which we're talking about today in modern pathology, uh, really focusing on the most challenging diagnostic examples of myxoid liposarcoma, that is those tumors that are dominated by round cells that can very closely mimic other high-grade round cell sarcomas, which are very difficult to recognize. Sorry to interrupt. So you would, in in the classic low-grade, you you usually don't see the need to do the genetic and and now the immunohistochemistry because... Morphology. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right, George. I think it's it such, has such distinctive histology with the vascular pattern that everybody knows to look for when the tumor arises at the classic location. Usually, histology is sufficient. It's one of those sarcomas we recognize uh, on H and E. But when they arise at really unusual sites, or it's a metastatic lesion without a clear primary. Uh, or when you're dealing with another sarcoma type that has abundant myxoid stroma that closely mimics myxoid liposarcoma, having the ancillary confirmation by genetics is very helpful. But certainly in those tumors that have a very hypercellular appearance, it's almost impossible to make the diagnosis purely on the H&E. So until recently, we would usually resort to fluorescence and situ hybridization fish either against FUS, FOS, which is the fusion partner with DDIT3 in 95% of cases, or you can do FISH using uh, probes directed against DDIT3, which is the invariant partner. About 5% will use EWSR1 instead of FUS. So you will miss a few cases if you just do FISH using FOS. Got it, because EWSR is the partner in that fusion in those minority of cases. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So, so FISH was, uh, was uh, your go-to, but now with this, uh, hopefully, as we're going to discuss, uh, that may make it easier. And I'm all for uh, easy uh, immunohistochemistry, something that is available uh, everywhere. I fully agree. So uh, how, uh, how did you uh, design the study? Uh, you mentioned it's been uh, shown that it may work. And so how many cases, what kind of cases you used? Yeah, so in this study, as I mentioned, George, we really focused on these high-grade myxoid liposarcomas, which in the old school terminology, we used to call round cell liposarcoma, but now that we know that they have shared genetics, we group them all together and call them high-grade myxoid liposarcoma. These are actually quite uncommon. Only a small subset show predominantly hypercellular morphology. So we collected a, a large cohort of 50 cases 
of high-grade myxoid liposarcoma. Uh, and then we collected um, a series of several hundred additional cases, about 320 mimics, that included essentially all the other well-defined round cell sarcomas that we might consider in the differential diagnosis. Uh, we weren't focusing on any, any particular type. We were really focusing on all the different types. And we even include neuroblastoma, which is often grouped in with the uh, round cell malignant neoplasms of young patients, even though that's not strictly speaking a sarcoma. Um, we're fortunate here at, in my hospital at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, we are the cancer center um, for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So we have a very high volume of of rare sarcomas that come to us for, uh, for a second opinion or for, for management. In addition, we have a very large consultation practice for sarcomas. So it's actually quite straightforward for us to pull three or 400 cases of these really rare sarcomas to do validation studies to confirm the diagnostic utility and specificity of these new markers that we uh, apply. So just for our audience that are non-soft uh, tissue uh, uh, focus, uh, so these cases included Ewing, like you said, uh, uh, desmoplastics, more round cell tumors, uh, neuroblastomas, alveolar and rhabdo, and uh, even mesenchymal chondrosarc, among others. Of course, the B-core and the CIK, sick, what is that? Yeah, rearranged sarcomas. <laughs> you guys keep making up new I entities. I know, yeah, it hard. really. So this sarcoma type that you referred to, for a time, it was called SickDux4 because that's the dominant fusion. Um, it turns out this is one of the most common sarcomas that used to be buried in this wastebasket that we call Ewing-like sarcomas or undifferentiated around cell sarcomas that lack the canonical EWS rearrangement of Ewing sarcoma. It's actually 70 or 80% of that former wastebasket belong to this category. Mm -hmm. So we actually see them all the time, even though in the past, before a decade ago, we didn't even know what they were. So now because you can rarely get other fusion partners, now we've gotten rid of the Dux4 in the name. And now we just call that sick rearranged sarcoma, or if you prefer right. CIC rearranged sarcoma. And that's right. These are the the kind of the most common sarcomas you'd consider in the differential, like the rhabdomyosarcomas and brinal alveolar. I mentioned neuroblastoma. Um, and then, you know, desmoplastic round cell, cell tumor, the very rare tumors that you might at least somehow consider in the differential, along with the more common ones like Ewing sarcoma and poorly differentiated synovial sarcoma. Excellent. Uh, I definitely am going to stick to GU uh, going <laughs> forward, uh, not even, even try to look at soft tissue. Yeah, except uh, those re your renal tumors keep expanding dramatically. So now that's, that's, those of us who don't do GU pathology are kind of giving up on, on RCC. It, it caught up with us too at the end. So <laughs> it used to be simple, you know, atypical or 336 uh, prostate <laughs> cancer, unfortunately, no longer the case. So, uh, so the immunogister, uh, the antibody you mentioned, that's a commercially available antibody as, as I read in the papers, APCAM. So people. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, you know, we, all the antibodies that, that I use in my research projects my goal is always to translate them into a new diagnostic tool for us in, in surgical pathology. So I always use commercially available antibodies for all the all my publications. And as you said, this is a really nice mouse molecule antibody um, directed against the N-terminus of the DDIT3 protein that's just available from ABCAM. So it's a very you know widely 
um, available yeah. vendor that many laboratories use. And uh, so just, just a word about how, what do you consider positive uh, versus negative and what were your findings? Sure. So this, you know, this protein is normally expressed in the nucleus. So we're looking for nuclear staining, which is always kind of the nicest for us in surgical pathology because it's, it's easy to be confident when you have distinct nuclear staining. Um, and we, were, uh, we, were, we had a very low threshold when we were first using the antibody really just trying it out to kind of get a sense of the distribution. Um, if you, you essentially use any staining as positive, um, we had almost 100% of the myxoid liposarcomas that were positive. But if you have a very low threshold, there were a small subset of histologic mimics that had very limited staining, like 5% of nuclei or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if you use a higher threshold, like for example, strong staining in 50% of the nuclei, we still had a really high level of sensitivity for myxoid liposarcoma over 95%. Wow. Uh, and then our specificity went to 100%. So we really only saw a very small group of, you know, apparently non-predictable, just kind of sporadic examples of various tumor types that showed limited nuclear staining. Um, as I mentioned, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be any real rhyme or reason. We found a few Ewing sarcomas that had some nuclear staining often around areas of necrosis. So I don't know if that's a little bit of upregulation of the protein as a response to hypoxia. You know, we, we always like to, to propose some mechanisms when we're describing the findings, but we're really not sure about the mechanism. But really beyond that, there's, there are almost no other tumors that show more than very limited staining in small numbers of nuclei. So if you really see extensive staining, this marker seems to be almost perfectly specific for myxoid liposarcoma. And that's a relatively large number of cases on both sides, considering how rare these things are. So uh, it seems like it will pan out. Uh, yeah, just, and, and just, and sorry, just to, sorry, excuse me, just to refer back to Greg Charville's paper that also was recently published in American Journal of Surgical Pathology. He had very similar findings in the range of myxoid sarcomas. So at the lower grade end of the spectrum, it seems to be very similarly sensitive and specific. So it really, at least uh, these two large studies have shown a really robust um, sensitivity and specificity. So I know you use TMA, which is uh, in addition to whole slides, uh, so which is the way to do it. And uh, but uh, the uh, advantage TMA has some weaknesses, but advantage it mimics needle biopsies. So so that's yes. you're looking at a very limited area. So it's always reassuring to see that. But uh, what would you recommend, like on a small needle? You, you would say if it's diffused and strong, buy it. But if if you know because five percent on a small needle yes. maybe difficult is that is that the approach you would recommend seeing forward yeah i think that's that's a very good point um and uh just as an aside when i do my initial validation studies for clinical implementation i really try to focus on whole whole sections from resection specimens and it always includes some core biopsies because then as you describe i think you you have a much higher degree of confidence for the distribution of the antigen or of the marker in, in section. So in this study, um, most of the cases were actually in whole section. We did have some in a TMA. Um, so just based on what we've seen in the combination of the TMA sections and in the whole sections, um, I think you have to certainly have some caution if you're dealing with 
a cell block generated from a fine needle aspiration or a core needle biopsy. If you only see staining in a subset of nuclei, like five or 10%, I probably wouldn't um, use that information to make the diagnosis. If you really are still suspecting myxoid or round cell liposarcoma, then I would probably resort to FISH or next generation sequencing using one of the the kind of RNA fusion panels. Um, however, if you see extensive staining, then I think you can be confident. And in fact, in well-fixed core needle biopsies, all of the cases we evaluated were diffusely positive, That's pretty much every mean. nucleus. So I don't think that you will find in practice limited staining. Um, this marker also has the advantage because irrespective of exactly where the fusion site is, you know, which exons are used, if there are small variations in the amino acid sequence at that fusion site, that doesn't seem to, to change the, the uh, recognition by this antibody since it recognizes a, a conserved area at the end terminus that's pretty far away from those breakpoints. Excellent point. Well, so it sounds like we're going to start using this. Uh, I'll make sure that we, we add it to our battery. <laughs> yeah, well, no, uh, I, I, I think so. I've, I, um, in my lab, I always wait for a peer-reviewed publication before I pull the trigger and release them clinically. So I waited until this, these, uh, Greg's paper was online and then ours quickly followed before I essentially turned it on in our orderable system. And I, I think it's, I, in general, I kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable releasing antibodies before there's any literature that you can see online. Um, so I think that's a reasonable threshold for me. So as soon as it was available, then I started writing it clinically. Excellent. Uh, Jason, uh, thank you for uh, this very informative first for the study that's going to help a lot of uh, pathologists out there and uh, for everything you do. Uh, you mentioned and you kept referring to your studies. There are like 500, around 500 of them if you include chapters. Amazing productivity for somebody that young. And uh, <laughs> uh, we, we help, uh, thank you for your help with USCAP on the Educational Committee and certainly on our journal. And uh, I hope to uh, see you again. Uh, uh, soon in, in a meeting or uh, in another podcast. Thank you very much, George. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you about our research and about the journal. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.